So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at those first eight verses, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back over here in the corner. Um, That's our gift to you uh, if you don't have one, and also it'll be on the screen behind me, uh, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what becomes really clear from from Paul when he's instructing Titus and he's instructing the the church is that there's a difference between uh, living a Christian life and living a life of that which a person does not follow Christ. But in our day and in our culture, there is great confusion around what it means to be a Christian. And there are many definitions, in fact, in our culture that are made by the culture around us. That Some say, I am a Christian because as a kid, I, I prayed a prayer, I came forward at a conference. Some would say, I'm a Christian because of a, I've really attended church all my life. I've gone to those services continually. Some would say, uh, because it says so on my Facebook page, I, I marked the, the little box there. And some would say, I'm a Christian because in, in one way or another, I've really followed a, a spiritual type life. I'm on this path and, and Jesus is somewhere in the midst of that with me. But the reality is that none of these, in fact, are marks of a true Christian. And so Paul is writing to Titus and reminding the church that a true Christian looks and lives very different than those who do not believe. That this new life comes through a new birth, as, as Paul w- would say in another way, which is how we receive salvation. That Jesus describes this in John chapter 3, verse 3. You can go and read the story of what Jesus says is the need of someone to be born again. And in verse 5, Paul uses the word regeneration, which really refers to the transformation of the corrupt human nature by the Holy Spirit. So the regeneration is that transformation by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, as he instructs the church, he's convinced that this regeneration or new birth is where people completely have changed lifestyles and experience life under God's authority. That this changed lifestyle then, Paul gives us in this changed lifestyle, Paul gives us several essential things that will help us define and live out this new life. In verses 1 and 2, he gives us seven commands that we're reminded to walk in. And these instructions from Paul are both difficult and weighty because of the own current state of our culture. 
These aren't easy things for us to look at and go, this seems easy to me, this seems simple to me. But despite the difficulty, Paul's instructions are incredibly relevant and incredibly important because here his instructions are specifically for the Christians. And specifically, his instruction to these Christians is in their responses and in their reactions towards the pagan culture that they were in around. That first were to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And for us, what we need to remember as Christians, as followers of Christ, we need to remember that a Christian submits to the headship of Jesus, first of all. That as we look at submission and headship, we're first under the authority of Christ. That above all else, we're to follow God's headship as we follow Christ and God's word. And so Jesus even said in the midst of his ministry, as people were asking, who, who, do, we, who do we give to? Who do we, who do we follow? And, and Jesus said, even seeing their, their deception and their questions and, and lack of desire to be submissive, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 21, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so Christians are, are really not those who bring about chaos and disorder. These are not marks of a true Christian. So we're not to be overthrowing the government or disobeying the government. This is not what shows true marks of a believer. But what, what I want us to understand as the state that we're in, and, and not just the, the state of Washington, but the current state of our culture there, there are ways in which we, we are divided with government and we need to stand under the authority of God. And, and that's when it brings into direct conflict with the commands of God. And, and so Peter, in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, verse 29, we see that even Peter found himself, Peter and the apostles found themselves before the government saying, listen, you need to not preach the gospel. And Peter's response and the apostles' response was, we must obey God rather than men. And so there are times where we're at a different stance, we're at a conflict there, but really we're under the authority of God. And so our duty to the, to the government can really be summarized by three words that are under the authority of Christ, that we're to obey, we're to pray, and we're to pay. And then second, Paul says that we need to be obedient. And this word obey literally in the Greek means to stand under. It means to be under another's, uh, another person's authority. And it's used many times throughout the New Testament to describe a military term. That, that it's the same word that would apply to a soldier in obeying his orders. It means to follow those orders, to follow through with it. So here, Paul is not telling us to obey begrudgingly with right behavior but to be obedient as unto Christ with right hearts. And then the third thing that Paul tells us is to be ready for every good work. He says, be ready, be prepared for every good work. And that word every indicates the command that it's extensive. That as we talk about good works, it's not just a, a couple categories of what would be good and, and how we're to work out certain things, but it's an extensive, important category that every is, is in every regard to every area of life. So then in Galatians 6.10, it says, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So the Christian is one who looks for opportunity to serve both the people of God and the people who do not know God. That we would be ready for these types of works, looking for opportunities, not just waiting around and going, what's my, what's my calling here? What, what should I step into? But being eager and faithful, looking for opportunities. How can I serve the people of God? How can I serve people who don't know God that by my serving, they may see God? And then fourth, Paul says that we should speak evil of no one. Now, here's what's important for us to understand and and take a reality check on. That that some of us are external processors, some of us are internal processors, but the reality is we all talk a lot, okay? We all talk a lot. And, And I think what we tend to do is we disconnect our online talking from our offline talking. That what you say on social media even includes what you talk about. And and the reality is one-fifth of your life will be spent with your mouth open. So that's a lot of opportunity to bless, and that's a lot of opportunity to curse. And so I I think what Jesus said in Luke 6.45 is really important. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And this is the important piece. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. So it's not just the words that are flowing from your mouth, but it's a reflection of your heart. Um, I I don't know if you saw early Sunday morning last week what happened in Orlando uh, when um, a man went into a gay bar and and killed a a ton of people. Um, And one of the responses uh, that just made me feel sick um, that evening, among the many who were just mourning, um, both in that community, I just can't imagine what it would be like to, I mean, just think about that. We don't understand what that looks like to, to walk away from uh, a gender identity and say, this is the community I align with. Um, and then by that, realizing that now I'm going to fear my life. Um, so I, I don't agree with that lifestyle, but regardless of that, I just, my heart was broken for those people and the fear that they were feeling. And one of the responses that just made me feel sick um, that Sunday evening was a pastor who got up before his congregation and said, look at this as good. And the only disappointment here is that uh, more were not taken out in the process before he was taken out. Listen, I don't care who you are, that's evil. That's evil. From a man who claims to preach the word of God, that's evil. So regardless of your differences, regardless of your opinions, what Paul is saying is speak evil of no one. Don't don't say these things. This is not what believers are called to walk into. And so Paul really is clear, speak evil of no one. And then also, Paul says avoid quarreling. That Paul has much to say on this issue, in fact, and we're going to look at more of this in in verses 9 through 11 next week. But what I would say today in the regard of Paul talking about avoiding quarreling is that as believers, we need to exercise wisdom. We really need to think before we speak. That we need to refuse to hold a grudge and also to give others the, we need to give others the benefit of the doubt that the believer is one who refuses to take part in any type of abuse, both, both physical and verbal, that we would avoid quarreling. We wouldn't just kind of dance around it and 
quarrel when we feel like it and quarrel when we feel all theological and smart, but that we'd avoid it completely. And then sixth thing, the sixth thing that Paul says is that we need to be gentle. Too often our response and our reaction is just utter harshness. This void of godly character. And so as we look at the life of Jesus, if we were to just look in the four gospels and the life of Jesus, what we see is, is Jesus having a gentle response that he was gentle with all that he came into contact with unless other action or other response was needed. And in that, his judgment was right. But our judgment is often not right at all. And so I think what's kind of difficult, especially for guys, we look at that and think of being gentle and we just kind of think of carrying something that's fragile. But really, I think the difference is rather than like this physical kind of weakness of what scripture is calling you to, it's really a heartfelt meekness. Okay, if that, if that makes sense to you, just that we would be gentle in our words that's coming from a heart level. And then also... Paul says that we're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And there's many different verbiages throughout different translations that in the King James Version, it says showing all meekness. In the NASB translation, it says showing every consideration. And in the NIV, it says to show true humility. But what what this really means is that we who have been shown grace need to extend grace. We who have been shown grace need to extend grace. And Paul tells us to do all of these things because before our new life and before our new birth, he reminds us of how we once were. Then in verses three through seven, Paul reminds the believers in Crete of what life was like before Christ and what their new life is now like because of their new birth in Christ. And so at the beginning of of verse three, Paul even includes himself. He doesn't exclude himself. He says, we ourselves were once. And he lists many things of what life was like. He, He includes himself in this old foolish life without Christ. He points out many characteristics and defines a life set apart by, set apart from Christ. Then in verse three, he mentions being foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. As we look at our, our, our culture and how void of God it is, don't some of these things sound familiar? Don't some of these things echo what, what we see in the news, what we see online, what we see in our communities? See, what Paul's really making clear is your old life should look nothing like, your new life should look nothing like your old life that they should be the complete opposite of one another. That it's a complete transformation of our life by a God at work. And here's the the important piece, even before we responded to him. And so in verse five, Paul shares with us an important foundation upon which our new birth has been established. And Paul says, according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. And mercy and grace are often confused. These are these two words that that happen to go really close together, but they're not the same word. That grace and mercy are actually two different things that God gives to us. That grace is where God blesses us despite the fact that we do not deserve it. But his mercy is that God is choosing not to punish us for our sins, even though we did deserve it. 
So, so the reality of God's mercy is that where we chose hell, God chose heaven. Where we chose damnation, God chose salvation. Where, where we chose to run away from God and be separated and segregated from God, he chose to run after you and he sent Christ to do so. This is the beautiful truth of the Bible. This is one of the most incredible truths of the Bible, that it's always been God reaching out to man, not man reaching out to God. That our reaching back is just a response to his pursuit. So as Paul says, it's not, by, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not by our own works. It's not by our own ability, but according to his own mercy. This is the important piece for us to remember. Because what we can often do, I think, is really believe that as we're saved by Jesus's righteousness, then we get into this dangerous thinking where then in pursuit of a new life in Christ, we're working out our own righteousness, which is really a wrong thinking. Because really, remember, Paul makes it clear, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. But, but if for you, you're someone who, who, who doesn't trust in the righteousness of Jesus or you, you, you don't believe in the righteousness of Jesus, you struggle with understanding, believing in the righteousness of Jesus, really what, what tends to happen is then you're, you're really trying to, to earn your own righteousness. So, so what happens then is you begin to have to pretend and project a, a type of false strength that, that you've got it all together that you have no other choice really but to do this because this is what is your own self-righteousness. So really what that means is if you feel tired and worried that one day you'll be found out by everyone and, and someone might find out that you aren't as strong as you think you are, you're not as good as you think you are, and you're not as perfect as you think you are, can I just tell you the truth that you're not? You're not. That, that the reality of scripture is you're not that awesome. God is that awesome. So the only true measure of righteousness is Jesus. So it's not about your attempt of self-righteousness. It's about you choosing to believe in Jesus and rest in his righteousness. And this is what Paul said in Philippians towards the, in chapter three, towards the end of verse eight and in verse nine, he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is how Christ is the root in the believer's life that it's not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ alone. And that from that, in resting in his righteousness, that, that we would then walk in good works, which then become the fruit of the believer's life. But what I said last week is we talked also about good works, which it seems that Paul just continues to talk about the believers being active in these good works, that our works are the outward expression towards others of our inward change through faith in Christ. That we're called to be active in good works. That those who have been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit are described by Paul simply as those who have believed in God. 
and that because they have believed and do believe, they should be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, I think, I think what our tendency is in looking at good works and not something that's in my notes, but I think really important is that we tend to have this, this American Christianese kind of understanding of good works um, that, when, that when an announcement is made that you need to serve, that, that means that you have to step into good works. Um, and, and whatever was said where you need to go volunteer, you better do that and do it faithfully. Um, and all of us need to respond to that. I think when we also look at good works outside of the church, our tendency is to really look at them as this moralistic list. But really what Paul is saying is these are the marks of which shows the change that Christ has done in your life. It's anything that Christ has done in your life that then you are showing that inward change by an outward expression. So when God moves your heart to be with the kids as we, as we announced earlier, that, that there's a need for more people serving in kids ministry. As, as you respond to something like that, it's saying, God, I'm gonna faithfully step into that as though I'm serving you. That in the midst of your work, in the midst of your family, good works is the active submission of the believer, the constant outward expression of the inward change. And so the new birth will result in a new life, Paul says. The death is replaced by life. The flesh is captive to the spirit and evil works are overcome by good works. And these good works really become the fruit by which others can see the inward change in your new life. And through that, that draws them in to the Christ that has changed you and the Christ who can change them too. One of the things I love to do whenever I find the resource is to read sermons from some of my, my favorite pastors and theologians from years and years ago. Um, and, and one of my favorites is Charles Spurgeon, um, an old time uh, pastor, preacher, cigar smoker, um, great, great man of God, who uh, one, one of the resources I found the other day um, was of his uh, sermon on this exact text. Um, and it was awesome to find out that, that hundreds of years later, um, that what he had preached is still being preached today in some areas, the importance of uh, the message of Christ. But one of the things that he said that I think is really important that I want to share with you is the importance and the clarity of, of good works in the believer's life. That towards the end of his own sermon, he said, this precept is special in its direction. To the sinner that he may be saved, we say not a word concerning good works, except to remind him that he has none. To the believer who is saved, we say 10,000 words concerning good works, pleading him to bring forth much fruit, that so he may be Christ's disciple. And there is all the difference between the living and the dead. The living we arouse to work and the dead we must first, the dead must first receive life. To the living we arouse to work, and the dead must first receive life. So, so let me just close our time this morning by really asking you to consider this question. If Christ is the root in your life, if Christ is, if Christ is the root, where is your fruit? 
If Christ is the root in your life, if he has transformed you by the work of the Holy Spirit, where is the fruit? Are you bearing good fruit and being active in good works where those around you are able to see a life, a new life, marked by a new birth where you are devoted to good works? So if Christ is the root, where is your fruit? Let's pray.